0: the best outcome in terms of language, in terms of uh, prediction, and things like that. And uh, uh, real estate definitely is all about running the right probabilities um, so that you can de risk and like grow your assets.
1: You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt For, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success.
0: Arunab, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Matt, for having me.
1: Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream?
0: My favorite ice cream. That is a very good question. My favorite ice cream is a very simple uh, chocolate ice cream with maybe chocolate chips in it. So I okay. really love love the flavor.
1: Chocolate on chocolate, huh?
0: Chocolate on chocolate. That's right.
1: <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today?
0: So I run uh, one of the first uh, data-driven intelligence company for real estate. Um, we are the Jarvis for real estate. Um, like. any Ironman fans in the audience would know it immediately, it's basically that centralized intelligence which brings together your internal and external data and you can conversationally take your next best decision without doing all the gymnastics of stitching together all that data on your Excel sheets and the models and somebody built it like 20 years ago and you're still using those performance and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, we um, we were chatting a bit before the show here. It seems like the, the real estate industry is very lagging in the technology space. So anything that can pretty up a spreadsheet, make it easier and communicate data across platforms is very, very interesting. But before we kind of dig into that segment, take us back. Like, where did your real estate journey begin?
0: It began like, uh, right? I would say... Actually, in my teens, essentially, I, uh, I was fond of actual buildings, but I started coding when I was 12, essentially working across C-sharp couple, Fox Pro, pre of HTMLs sold my first software when I was 16 on a floppy drive to my local business, just trading out internet hours for them saying, you know, I won't pay you for like internet for a year, but what I can do for you is actually solve for your timesheet management. And here's the software on this floppy drive. You don't need to fill in timesheets. And that worked out really well for me. Um, So a pretty uh, curious kid growing up um, really uh, learned a lot of computers before I went to engineering college and I went to one of the top engineering colleges, uh, didn't want to spend so much time learning whatever I learned in my teens. So ended up doing civil with, uh, you know, computer science minor and like understood um, how these two uh, big, big um, industries come together. So very fortunate to be part of one of the, some of the largest public private partnership projects, bringing technologies from Germany and Japan to India, uh, for the very first time to build railways. Um, and then, um, you know, helping some of the top players in the industry, like JLL, Bushman Wakefield expand some of the bigger clients in Asia Pacific, very early on in my career. Um, we have, uh, you know, a lot of, um, experience and understanding on that space so my job uh, since my career began is integrating technology and real estate and infrastructure across multiple global areas um, so that's how like my journey in real estate actually began um, at twenty five I found a company which got acquired to, uh, uh you know to a uh, logistics private equity company and then i continued my journey handling over a billion dollars of assets after my m b a uh, across north america with uh, real estate private equity and you know you just mentioned a few you know moments ago that the real estate industry is so behind um when i moved to north america and started working in private equity i felt like i'm coming from 21st century to 1800s in the north american real estate it's like back to the future in reverse and then i was like how is this even possible a 43 trillion dollar industry one of the biggest asset classes in the world is managed on crashing excel sheets and i was a part of uh, i was director of asset management and i was part of this uh, you know 130 million dollar deal repackaging it and my excel's were crashing I was I cannot even believe this is what's happening with me. Um, so, you know, that's how my journey in real estate actually does started.
1: So I want to go back to this idea that you were working in Southeast Asia and India in real estate. Um, you, you contracted some of the technology differences, but what else did you see were like some of the main differences between how real estate has done in some of those countries and, and areas of the world versus North America?
0: Yeah. So it's a very interesting mix. Uh, North American real estate uh, investors are way more sophisticated that I would say because they know how to run the number. How, they know how to use the leverage and leverage is king. Uh, I was talking to one of my buddies who heads uh, um, global real estate for Heinz in uh, South America, sees the same journey. Is um, basically really understanding the build of the financial structure, which is very different. But then efficiencies are are totally reversed. So because those are like developing countries, I worked in like Middle East and others where like there's heavy um, um, feedback or heavy uh, focus on building more efficient because there's big amount of equity in these assets. So the efficiency on those markets are much higher in terms of like how they're dealt with. What kind of technologies are in there? How sophisticated they are in operations and operating uh, those assets? Because the margins are even lower uh, when you don't have like fully levered uh, assets, which are giving you uh, outsized IRRs in uh, in North America.
1: What? Um, so going to the LTV, just looking at it from a simple standpoint, like what you said, they're not very levered. Like, what are the typical LTVs across a portfolio? I think here in the States, it's pretty common to see like 80%, 75 to yeah. 80%. Um, what do you see uh, elsewhere in the, in the world?
0: It is different for different people, companies, uh, individuals. It is way more varied than North America, way more varied. You will see the entire range of like um, 70% equity in uh, to like, Twenty percent equity or thirty percent equity, depending on who is being underwritten or what is the uh, rating, what is the risk appetite, and things like that uh, across board. So there is like a lot more variance than like standardization, and that's why I said like the sophistication level in here is like pretty straightforward. While there, they need to underwrite a lot of risk. Also, you know, a lot of those uh, countries across Asia, even in South America, the culturally. That is not looked in the same way like it is looked in here because that here is way to inflate your return which makes total financial sense well like culturally that in countries like india or like you know um some of the asian countries others are uh, basically um looked at uh, something you should get rid of and that's why like there's a very different culture of like how much equity you want to put in before making those decisions and all.
1: Can you speak to the maturation of property laws at all? So um, just to set some context, there was a a book that was written in the early 2000s called The Mystery of Capital by Hernando De Soto. And and you're smiling like you might have read it or heard about it but essentially it was talking about like, why do some countries struggle to get economically viable and other countries don't. And the author's thesis was essentially that their property rights, because when you have property rights, you now have an asset and a tangible thing that you can loan against and build net worth and equity and all those sorts of things where those are still developing in other parts. So I'm just wondering if you could give like a high level on property laws and the maturation you dealt with.
0: That's one of the biggest pieces, how, now um you know the reads in brazil are performing really better because the socio political environment actually drives a lot of it right in in the countries like india i have seen actually a very tremendous growth in the sophistication and now it's like way more sophisticated over the last 10 years because the property rights are not only formed kept but also enforced in a really right way like in north america um and uh everyone gets the right uh, and then it all moved from a system of attorneys and power of attorneys to a registry based system to like now basically very digitized. And it's like in some cases I would say is more advanced digitized than like a lot of West, um, in terms of how how these properties are now registered, uh to taken care of and maintained and enforced in that. And those are the things which has developed over the last 20 years um, in a lot of Asian countries um, in various shape and form. Um, and some of the countries are still catching up. I was talking to one of my buddies from uh, from Poland, and uh, they are now in the phase of like internet listing sites. And those are like new and coming up because earlier everyone used to have their own website, but now, people are discovering there is something uh, that can be like Open Door, or there's something that can be like Zillow in those countries and um, getting to those innovations now.
1: Yeah, make no mistake about it. Like realtor.com, Zillow, uh, Open Door, some of these places out there that have just essentially aggregated the supply and put it into a single portal that you can view. You don't get that elsewhere and throughout the world. And it's amazing if like you're looking for property in Brazil uh, or Belize, I'm sorry, you'll have to go realtor by realtor to see what they have listed. And it's just highly inefficient.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: So when you came to North America, you mentioned you were doing some asset management for some of these larger organizations. Um, I'll start off with what does that mean in case an investor, a listener out here Um, might not understand that concept of asset management.
0: Yeah, um, I will actually explain it in a very simple term. Uh, The work of asset management uh, or an asset manager is de-risk an asset. You can de-risk an asset in two different ways. So one is physical de-riskment and the second is financial de-riskment. So as an asset manager, you're responsible to, of course, like there are part of acquisitions which you can involve in. Uh, where like you understand how the risk profile of the asset looks like, what is the discounted cash flow, all that uh, good stuff. Uh, but when you're operating an asset and managing uh, a portfolio, you need to make sure that your assets are one performing how they were described while during the acquisition, like performing to your LPs or your investors at the right way. And you're consistently delivering on that. And the second is how you're improving the outcome. So when you want to improve the outcome, you basically want to make sure that physically it's there. risk. So the property is maintained correctly. It's operated right way. It's getting the right upgrades when required. It's getting the right renovations when it's required or getting the right fixes. If there is a highest and best use upgrade or the lobby needs to be done, those are the major decisions you need to like make so that your asset keeps on performing where it, is and improves so de-risking that piece um, and the second is financial meant like making sure that you have the right leverage and making sure if you have to refinance that asset or dispose that asset you're doing it right uh, in the right manner everything comes down to and also like occupancy rates and vacancies and making sure that you're not hitting your um, very interesting thing in multiple institutional multifamily is you probably would be okay keeping your asset vacant for a longer time than hitting your net uh, rental revenue from the asset because it all comes down to the value of the asset and it's always done on the average rent of the building Um, instead uh, with the market vacancy level instead of your vacancy level. So essentially it all comes down to the very good calculation of um, your cap rate so your cap rate, if you're a de-risk asset, you will get a good cap rate on that building. Um, and uh, you basically need to make sure your NOI projected or formed is the highest enough so that you have the best value for the building. And that's the job of an asset manager.
1: So if I'm listening to this episode and I'm interested in involving, uh, getting involved in, as a passive investor in some multifamily opportunities... Um, one of the things that I know right now is that they took out a lot of floating rate debt and debt seems to have eaten into the distributable cash flow of an investment right now.
0: That's right.
1: However, um, there's also, you know, like you mentioned, standard maintenance that has to have on a property as well. So what are some questions that maybe uh, a passive investor should be asking their operators right now about how they're managing their portfolio? Knowing that essentially floating rate debt has gotten almost outside of their control, nobody expected the Fed to hike 500 basis points in in a matter of 12 months. So I'm just wondering, from your perspective and your background, what would you be asking some operators right now if you were an investor?
0: That's a great question, Matt. Um, you know there are two factors which drive real estate. So one of that is external, and the other is internal. Everyone just talks about external factors, which they don't get, which most of them cannot control because today, if you go and try to underwrite any property for acquisition, the numbers just don't make sense. Um, like out of the 750 deals, a big, uh, institution would like to look at in this market, they would probably do one. And that's the, that's the challenge, but everyone just talks about external market, talk about location, talk about every, every other thing, um, out there. Um, in the market, the the second very interesting thing, which basically a, a lot of really good players operators have done, is looking internally. Um, and there are so many opportunities, which if you're working with the right operator for your multifamily asset, or you are the right operator for your multifamily asset can change those bottom line dynamic and still create a solid business till the time your external factors actually come back down to for the numbers to make sense and that's where the, the big big gap in real estate is and i'll tell you why because in the 15 years leading up to 2017 nobody gave a damn about it because you were making a lot of money by just holding real estate because Supplies were much lower than demands, and everything was at like literally 0% interest rate, and everyone was happy, and every other person you talk to is thinks that they are the smartest investors in real estate. But that's not true, because after 2017, the things have changed. The external environment has actually changed, and it is the time for you to look inward and say what you can do better in terms of selecting your next upgrade selecting uh, how your leasing funnels are working where you're spending your uh, marketing dollars where uh, what is the next capital expenditure in your building would look like and you know what most of the operators don't have those answers and they are going with all those gut feelings so i if i was a um, multi-family investor working with an operator what i would ask them that what is their data driven strategy how do you make decisions on my property on what needs to be changed and what need like where my dollar should go uh if i have to maintain my bottom lines and what is your matrix what's your process looks like on those like should i increase rents in these uh units why or why not you should have that answer and not a lot of people do have those answers and that's where you still have so much inefficiencies in this industry Because the external factors for the 10 years have been favorable. This is the first time the industry is adapting to making sure they're strong internally as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I disagree with one thing. I I am a genius investor. um, So I know you were referring to everybody Yeah. (laughs) yeah. I'm not adding you in there. (laughs) (laughs) No, it it is kind of funny you say that because um, when I talk about my real estate journey, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville has been a booming market. The reason why I kind of started getting really excited about real estate is because back in the 2016, 17, 18, I saw my portfolio just growing tremendously and cash flowing and i was having a conversation with an investor the other day around like this is the first real time that a treasury has competitive returns as um yeah as real estate now there's some tax benefits and appreciation that you're not going to get in a treasury on most treasuries um so i there's still a compelling reason there but it's the first time i've seen it played out where there is an actual cost of capital that is meaningful for investors to have to make an if then decision on where I should put my cash. Hey fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now, back to the show.
0: That's exactly, that's called CAPM, which is Capital Asset Pricing Model. And if you're a risk-free return is um, high enough to actually meet your real estate return, where the beta for real estate risk will go in, nobody knows. And then your return expectation for those assets becomes like all of a sudden 12%. And those are tough to beat. And that's where really the creme de la creme real estate is still trading because they are maintained, operated in such a great way that those 12% returns are literally like guaranteed and those are the uh, top performance in the current current market as well.
1: Yeah. And I also want to just do a little plug for us here is that that's why we shifted back in 2020 to more A-class multifamily properties versus the C-class where you needed to pump up millions of dollars of CapEx in is because we had the sinking suspicious that one, asset values were rising um, too quickly, too fast. And uh, two, we didn't wanna be left holding an asset in the C-class space at a six cap. uh, When we still had millions of dollars, we still needed to inject into the property. Um, So we decided looking internally that we were gonna look at lower expense assets, which are usually newer developed assets where Mm -hmm. we're not gonna have to do a bunch of repairs, a bunch of maintenance and those sorts of things. We can siphon off good enough cash flows for the first couple of years and then not have to do any of those deferred maintenance and then just basically pass it on to the next uh, operator of those properties when the time came. Um, and it appears to be playing out decently well for us, as I, specifically as I talk to people in the C-class space. But uh, I don't know. I would love your kind of opinion on that move and that strategy and just what oh, you're yeah. seeing across the market there. I think that
0: is a great strategy. One, it's more resilient asset class, E-class buildings. Um, I would say even B+, like they're like all more resilient asset class. I feel uh, the opportunity is great if you can get an A-class building because a lot of it is institutionalized. If you can get an A-class building, that's great. But the opportunity is also in areas which can be moved into A-class. And that is a very, very interesting piece where like there's opportunities where like you have an, have a place where it is BB plus at best, but you can de risk it significantly to get to A. Uh, those are also good opportunities. But the, the overall strategy from moving from C to A is great. More resilient in the grand market. Even the buyers, renter personas are much better in those. So you have less delinquencies, less risk, like all the great things. Like you made a great choice.
1: Yeah, there, there's very little delinquency in our portfolio now, and I know when we decided to kind of roll out this strategy, a lot of folks are saying, "Well, aren't they the first ones to downgrade when a recession happens or tough times happen?" And it's like, well, usually if somebody's paying you know three thousand five hundred, four thousand dollars for an apartment, they have some discretionary income. Um, I'm not saying that we won't see any. People fall out from our leasing funnels because of that, but it won't be everyone like some people have originally thought.
0: That's right. They don't. Yeah, they don't downgrade. They just uh, actually go onto their credit cards. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, which has bigger limits. So yeah,
1: right, right. <laughs> Um, so I guess th- the whole point of this first part of this conversation was to kind of set you up to talk about what you're doing today. Um, so you are now the technical co-founder of a software called RealSage. Um, you uh, help bridge this idea of data and real estate from the operating level. So I wanted to see if you could just kind of go over what is RealSage, where is it valuable, and then maybe we'll have some questions along the way here.
0: Yeah, so we are a AI driven decision support system for asset owners and managers, some of the largest players in US and Canada are already our customers and use the platform uh, to bring together all their internal and external data and we provide very advanced predictive modeling to bring the industry from hindsight looking data set to foresight looking data set, where you basically not only are able to see what's going on, across your portfolio and have conversation with your data but also are able to basically look at parameters which in future in near future can impact your um, impact your bottom line so we actively produce insights based on your data telling you if you take action a action B you would probably save X amount of dollars which for uh, current teams is very difficult to see because a lot of people are removed from the bigger picture because real estate is a lot of day to day and what happens in that whole day-to-day it creates multiple silos in these these companies so you have functional silos where you and me are sitting on different information taking different calls Uh, and then stitching together that data for a quarterly meeting. And that's the whole purpose of the report. Um, And then we have technological silos where there are different kinds of uh, um, new gen, you know, like uh, point of, uh, you know, pointed systems or pointed software, which do one job um, at a time, and they don't necessarily talk to each other. So someone is just stitching those data sets and giving a report again. But the purpose of reporting is not limited to essentially information. It's actually the way someone should take your decisions uh, across the company. And what RealSage does is just accelerate all that process, brings together that data, and gives you predictive models across 35 different use cases from marketing, leasing, revenue management, um capital expenditure budget and forecast act, budget and actuals and all those uh, areas uh, to be, to make you proactive where you get the competitive edge you are able to see what is going to help me in the next quarter um instead of like looking at the backward looking data and seeing like what went wrong
1: so let's, um, let's use a real-life example of CapEx. So if I've got a property, for instance, um, how would the software help me understand what capital ex- expenditures I should be looking at in the next quarter, year, those sorts of things? Yeah.
0: So if you have a property, we collect data from multiple different sources. So external, So we are only system which currently bring in external and internal data set and give you active benchmarking in terms of your revenues and how you can increase your revenues, but also collect data from like disparate systems, which has tenant acquisitions as well as tenant leasing, why, why people are saying no to your property. We have that data set from your CRM and other places. Uh, we also check on your maintenance and work hours where you're spending most money on, where what kind of requests your clients are doing. So we collect all that sentiment as well as actual data sets of during leasing, during marketing to really know what makes your property more attractive. So maybe it is, uh, you know, your gym needs to be brighter. And that is said somewhere by tens of people who have actually rejected your application or have been requested by some of your internal, um, you know, tenants. Who are looking to probably move out and have uh, have denied the renewal. And those are all data sets actually currently sit across on site staff, which hear them from one end and then never act on it, or maybe get into the recency biases of it, or get lost in their day to day. We collect all those different data sets and can tell you okay, here are the top three things, which is in the external market, generating the highest revenue based on your comp set. These are the buildings, these are the amenities which they have. This is what your tenant base is saying, and this is where your next capital dollar should go, and it would result in this much appreciation in your top line and reduction in your turnover. Because turnover costs are like one of the biggest costs, what most of the landlords actually face when somebody moves out, they need to like renovate or change uh, some of the things and then get somebody in. If you can remove reduce this turnover, make them more satisfied for a longer time, especially in the non um, non-rent controlled areas, and then also can make your property more attractive in terms of like the newcomer, you would of course have the benefit on the better bottom line on there. And that's what our software is able to suggest.
1: Yeah. And I think when uh, you're talking about this idea of, hey, I'm going to pump a $1,000 into here, but I can receive a 5% increase over here, those sorts of things. Anybody who's built out a uh, Excel model around underwriting and then managing a property already sees the value in that. Anybody that hasn't, it's not as simple as you would think (laughs) it is because you have different unit types, you have different price bands, you have different leasing cycles where somebody came in uh, in January versus somebody that came in in May. So they're going to be price differentials. There's all sorts of internal factors inside of a spreadsheet that make that decision way more difficult than than your software would. Yes,
0: and that is the very key piece because human brain, um, even the uh, highest IQ people can only store seven variables at the same point in time. And it actually ranges from five to seven. So that is the limit. And while a great, like a well done, um, statistical model can of course hold millions together and then give you the best statistical output. And at the end of the day, we were talking about this before the show started at the end of the day, all AI is um, very well done statistical models. Uh, which works through the best outcome in terms of language, in terms of uh, prediction, and things like that. And uh, uh, real estate definitely is all about running the right probabilities um, so that you can do risk and, like, grow your asset classes.
1: How did you all... So pulling that thread a little bit, from a statistical standpoint, like, what is the data set you used to come up with your statistical analysis? Or how did you all get to, hey, if you do this, then this is the probable outcome?
0: Yeah, we uh, come from the industry, my other co-founder, you know, went to Columbia, worked across like multiple, some of the largest players in New York and other places. Uh, We have very good understanding of multifamily um, ourselves. So we have like 10s and hundreds and 1000s of data sets, which we have trained over Model. We have worked with some of the top PhDs across US and Canada uh, to like come up with it. And then as we grow, um, because we work with institutionalized landlord, they can integrate their internal and external data sets with us. We are able to give them more um, tailored and customized suggestions across their portfolios. Uh, so like it, it was my day-to-day job. So it was my co-founders, right? And I come from engineering background, so I understand the other side of table that, okay, not a lot of uh, colleagues in real estate uh, are so technical. And wh- where it changes the entire game is me understanding how it is done if I'm a uh, asset manager and how it is done at scale, given that I can basically build this uh, system which can do it for you.
1: Yeah and I think one of the cool parts about AI that um doesn't get well publicized is it's an internal feeding model too. Yeah. The more data that you feed it and the more decision outcomes it learns and the decisions that you make using the data the smarter it's going to become. So if you want to roll this out day 1 it would be great, but day 1000 it's going to be even better.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah and that's the real goal like so insights we generate maybe like for you maybe it's correct on day one, but on day 100, it would be like 80% tailored to you and you are getting a 10x better solution is like having an assistant, which gives that, you know, superpower to your asset manager, to your team to really do the job, uh, which you at the first place hired them for, right? So um, that's where we stand in here.
1: Yeah. So um, just to get this question out of the way, will that end up replacing that asset manager at one day?
0: Never, because um, I, n- I never think that because, you know, it's a very interesting thing because we have seen such waves of technology over and over and have this these these questions over and over um in 80s uh, when the atm machines came out uh, every bank teller was on the street saying uh what we would do and our jobs are going to be lost actual numbers we have almost the same number of bank tellers in the last 40 years and it has not actually taken away the jobs and you know it's just elevates people it increases productivity and that's what the gdp is it's how we have become a seven trillion dollar industry it's not because the jobs were taken out and now we are seven billion people in the last hundred years we have like just quadrupled from like some you know two billion people to like uh, you know seven billion people now and we are still like so productive and all that is true increasing productivity so essentially what it is going to do is give you more hours to do the real job of an asset manager instead of struggling through your excel sheets and making them like crash. it increases that productivity and um, does so my question is is the iron man suit going to actually remove the iron man the uh, robert donna jr from it i don't think so and that's where that's where uh technology also comes in
1: yeah, you can tell great minds think alike over here because that's the exact example I used during these conversations. Is the ATM when it was invented, everybody thought that bankers would be out of a job, but there are more bankers today than there were by then. Exactly. Then by the by standards of like 4X or something like that. And it's because now there's CDL loans, there's S block loans, there's heat locks, there's auto loans. There's all these other high value tasks that that person can go do versus counting out $1 bills and giving it to the uh, client on the other side.
0: That's exactly the point.
1: Um, Fantastic conversation. I want to switch us now to our last round. We're calling this the four toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book? Or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift?
0: Okay, that's a uh, that's a tough one. Um, I one of uh, one of the good books uh, which I've read is uh, called Think Again, which definitely gives you this this understanding of whatever you know is not the absolute truth and you can think again about how you basically proceed like, like process because some of the times, if you're like few years in the industry or a decade in the industry, you're just setting in your own way and you don't question enough. And that's a very good book. I actually, um, suggest people who have been in the same industry for a long time to like, uh, read, uh, the other book is like play bigger. I think the, that is also a very good book, which talks about category defining companies. Um, specifically like us, given we are in such a interesting phase where this whole decision making category is being defined and we're leading the charge in this, um, is a very interesting book to read.
1: Yeah. I like the idea of think again, regardless of if you've been an executive in an industry or you just have some political beliefs or personal beliefs, it's always good to retest those every now and then to make sure you understand why you're believing that, not just believing it. That's right. Our second one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received?
0: Um, I would actually say, to, and it's a process of discovery. So I, after, you know, yeah, exiting my first company to private equity, I spent some time uh, being a monk in a monastery in Nepal. Um, and uh, during my time, I basically really found like two major profound things about the journey you would take in your future. Like one is, um, changing your locus of happiness. So if your locus of happiness is external driven, you're always seeking external validation, which makes you more difficult to like, really keep up with your happiness because others have command of it. So you can change your locus of happiness from external to internal, uh, and then you possibly can do much more uh, while not um, going through an emotional uh, roller coaster most of the times or like, you know, how your day is going is all predicted by like other people. Um, And the second is uh, practicing detachment, essentially, uh, if you're so how I define it, a lot of people say it as grit. So grit is a passion for doing something for a very long time. And Uh, for a lot of studies, including, you know, Harvard and others, that basically is a key indicator of success. So it's not IQ, it's not EQ or anything. It's grit that if you can actually go on for a very long time um, without losing that passion. But what happens is if you don't have, cannot practice detachment, any passionate journey, which you're really attached to, like entrepreneurship, is really rough it has highs and highs and lows like really uh you know low you cannot pursue it for a very long time because you get worn off as a person your energies get worn off you're like tired and a lot of entrepreneurs give up because they have not like they cannot go through the perseverance of it because they get uh really emotionally trained doing it Um, if you can actually detach uh yourself from the highs and the lows What it does, it actually shortens the blow on your like wearing off and enables you to go on for really longer and showcase that grit, which is the ultimate indicator of success um, in the journey. So um, I think like those are the two greatest uh, pieces um, of advice. And they are both very tough to do, Uh, requires a lot of like practice, but. would be something which I would ask my like eighteen year old self to like really, really delve in.
1: We're gonna uh, nerd out on the detaching yourself after the show. Okay. Um, I used to say I coached football, high school football before uh, this and we used really? to say that all the time. Oh, the I didn't know that. They okay. make football the way interesting. Yeah, the, the reason why they make the football the way they do is cause when you drop it, you never know where it's gonna go. And that is a signifying of life. You can't control where a football is going to go. When it hits the ground, you can't control the refs. You can't control the crowd, the weather condition. All you can control is yourself in the moment. And those people who don't get too high when good things go their way or too low when the ball bounces the other way are ultimately the teams that are going to win most of the games. Exactly. We want to be that team was the message. And, um, yeah, I think uh, that's something I still struggle with even though I was preaching the message
0: years ago. Yeah, it is. It is one of the most difficult things to do.
1: Yep. Our third one is, what are you most proud of in your life?
0: Right now, I'm uh, really proud of uh, changing how real estate makes decisions um, for for every other person who will join the industry. I, when I came in here, being an immigrant, looking at the industry, Facing that challenge, I was really appalled by how it is and now I'm really glad that I am taking this journey to like really change how real estate makes decisions and every new person who will join this industry will thank me for it. So I am uh, really proud of that.
1: Awesome. Well, our fourth and last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone
0: dead or alive, who would it be and why? That is a very interesting uh, question. Um, I would it's not about having a bowl of ice cream with that person, but I would love to be a fly on wall uh, on this very interesting conversation between a great philosopher, Rabindranath Tagore. Not a lot of people know about him. He's a Nobel laureate, um, comes from a very specific region of India where I'm born in as well, uh, and Albert Einstein um in germany when he like he was called like albert actually called Rudd at his house and had this conversation about uh, collective consciousness uh, and it talks about what is reality of universe and from both sides of things such a great documented uh conversation um between these two Nobel laureates. and Um, I would love to like hear that while having my chocolate ice cream with chocolate. on it.
1: I love it. I love it. I got to say the most unique answer that we've had so far, just a specific conversation and point of time and to be in the room.
0: That's right. Thank you.
1: Well, uh, Arunab, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, very valuable for us. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about you, real Sage, where's the best place we can point them?
0: Yeah, um, you can actually reach out to me at Arunab at realstage.com. Feel free to go to realstage.com as a site. There is request memo, contact us, uh, all of that good stuff. You can also look us up on um, LinkedIn. Don't forget to follow our page uh, on LinkedIn so that you can get like all the great updates about the real estate um, and technology. We do a lot of good content, which is... Uh, about the industry and uh, the trends we are seeing. So it would be of help for you.
1: Perfect. I'm following you now. So thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thanks a lot, Matt. Uh, Have a great day.
1: Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.